So we are talking about stories to live by. And the point is we're not giving you a new teaching on the incidents in Jesus' life. I just want to look at them through a different prism and say, these stories are here so that we would believe, and these stories in some sense are a pattern for our lives. You know my thesis is that we tell stories to make sense of the things that happen in our lives. This is true throughout all of human history. People have always told stories to make sense of their world. And that means your world in terms of why do tsunamis happen or your world in terms of why is my boss so hard to get along with? I mean, we tell stories to make sense of our world. Sometimes those stories are true and sometimes they're not true. Stories that are not true tend to clash with reality at some point. I mean, even to the point of being uh, delusional and I think if you read the newspapers today or you look at the news feeds, you would realize we have some stories. May I call them ideologies, but what they are is stories to make sense of the world that are patently delusional. And so that's not confined, you know, to those who are psychologically challenged. That's, you get some very damaging, difficult stories that people come up with. We want to look at the truest of true stories. We want to look at the stories that God has told us. These are stories by which we can pattern our lives. So this story tonight is actually an incident. It is so short, it's four verses long. And you're gonna say, oh, I've heard about that story. But when we dive into this story, we're gonna peel this story like an onion. I mean, there's kind of a surface meaning to this. And then we're gonna peel that layer back and we're gonna to go to a little deeper meaning and then we're gonna peel that layer back and we're going to get to a place that is going to make us uncomfortable. I don't mean it's gonna make us uncomfortable and that you'll walk out of here feeling guilty or that, I, that is not gonna happen, that's not the point of it. I only say this because every time I read this story and I think about this, which I read it at least once a year as I read through the Bible, usually more than that, I'm convicted and in a positive way to rethink my attitude about certain things. So you've seen, heard the disclaimer, and so if you're uncomfortable, I warned you. So here's our story, and uh, we'll take our time going through it just a little bit, but this is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. You'll see an account in the Gospel of Mark as well. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All the others gave their gifts out of their abundance, literally their, their abundance, their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, her lack of abundance, put in all she had to live on. Okay, that is a very short little incident, but there is some profound truths in here that, that have to do with how we're gonna live our lives. But let's paint the context first. I put a diagram in here because I feel like uh, diagrams are tough for people. I remember when I first became a Christian, I looked at the maps in the back of my Bible and I fell in love. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But I looked at the maps and I saw the diagram of the temple, I saw the Temple Mount and I thought, man, this means nothing to me whatsoever. But I think we are ready to look at this and situate this. What you see there is uh, the old city of Jerusalem, 
So our vantage point, I'm gonna show you a model of the temple in just a minute. And we're gonna be standing right here on the Mount of Olives and we're gonna be looking across this valley. There's a valley here, it goes way down, really steep, goes up to Jerusalem. But we're gonna stand on the mountain and we're gonna look across and we're gonna look at the temple. This is Herod's temple. So think about it, we're in the time of Jesus, Herod the Great, who's dead now because Jesus is an adult and he's preaching, but Herod the Great spent a lot of years building a beautiful temple mount on this hill. This is, this is a hill and it's big temple mountain and built a glorious temple up here. Romans built a fort right there attached to the temple and I'll show you in the mock-up where they could look down into the temple because so many riots have started in the temple. So they had troops quartered right by the temple mount. Herod the Great had his palace here. I'll show you kind of where that is as well. And then this is the wall around the city. Jerusalem was a walled city. So this is where we are. Jesus is in the temple courts. And I'll show you what those are in a minute. So he's basically on the temple mount in the temple area when this incident happens. So let me show you a model. This is, when you go to Israel, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem has a huge mock-up of Jerusalem at this time. And this is a huge model of the Temple Mount. So let me point out where we are. So we're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley, and we're kind of looking at the temple. So. These, uh, this Temple Mount is huge. Many, 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 many football fields. It is a huge area, so this is very large. And around the outside, this is Solomon's portico. So these are porticos around the outside. This huge area in here is the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, you were not a Jew, you could be in that area and you could be in this area. So, for example, when Jesus comes in and there are money changers, probably in this area, because he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. All these Gentiles come in here, and what do they think? They think we're merchants. They don't think we're worshiping God. So this is the court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles could be out there. This is the Antonia Fortress right over here. See how huge that is? That is probably where Pontius Pilate was staying, probably, when he was there in 30 A.D., the trial of Jesus, but they always had troops quartered there in the Antonia Fortress, and they could look down from the guard towers into the temple courts to make sure nothing went wrong. So let's get a little closer. We're just kind of dialing in a little bit more and more each time. And so these are the big retaining. Underneath here, there used to be a mountain. And Herod the Great just built a big flat table on top of it, massive, massive. I mean, he just literally reshaped the mountain to be bigger because he needed more room for his magnificent temple. And so you can see the temple itself. I'll go ahead and, uh, I do wanna show you one thing on this before we zoom in. Herod the Great's palace is back here and he had built an elevated walkway so he didn't have to walk with the peons down at street level. And so when he wanted to go to the temple, not that frequent. Uh, he wasn't exactly a devout man, but he could walk in his own personal thing and come into the temple uh, that way. So let me show you a close-up. So, court of the Gentiles, out here. This is a wall, and I've 
taught on this before, but there's a wall there and no Gentile can go past that point or they will be killed. And there are signs on that wall that says, if you're a Gentile and you come in past this wall, out of the court of the Gentiles, into the temple precincts proper, you will be killed. It's the only time the Romans let them execute uh, capital punishment. This is why in the book of Acts, I'm kind of off track here, but this is just interesting. So you can express to me time to move on by nodding, closing your eyes, and snoring. And I'll know it's time to move on. This is interesting because when the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, I mean, as long as here we might as well explain this, big riot came about because they thought he'd brought a Gentile into past this wall. That's not true, but they got the crowd saying, he brought a Gentile in here. We need to kill a Gentile if we can find him, and we definitely need to kill Paul. And they were about to kill him, except Centurion up here in this tower sees the riot and a bunch of soldiers come in, seize Paul, pull him out, and break the whole thing up. In here, this is the court of the women. So Jewish women could come into this part of the temple. You can't see this part very well, but the men could then go into this part of the temple and basically priests could go further. Inside this temple is the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, and of course, only the high priest could go there. So do you kind of get a feel for the layout? Since a woman was in this story, they're in the court, likely in the court of the women. They're out here in this area. And one thing that you know from other writers, not from the Bible, but this is like from Josephus and uh, certain other writers at the time, they said there were 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes. I mean, here at our church, we have blue boxes by the exit and you could put your tithe check into it. That's what these were. Uh, so they were big trumpet-shaped things and there were 13 of them scattered around this whole area. And so this woman was putting some money into the, uh, to one of these collection places, as were some men and other people. So you know that this happened out here somewhere, likely in the court of the women, and according to the ancient authors, that is indeed where the collection boxes were so that everybody could put money in. So Jesus is sitting here somewhere in this area, and he is watching the, what's going on in there, and so, here's this is a painting of the incident, not very accurate, but that nevertheless, you get the idea that he's watching one of these collection boxes. And so let's look at the first two verses. And all it is is the event itself, very brief. Jesus looked up and he saw rich people putting their gifts into the temple treasury, into one of these boxes. He also saw a poor widow. Uh, she didn't, doesn't have to be old, but she was a widow and she put in two very small copper coins. So a couple observations there. You've probably heard about the widow's mite before, but just to give you a, a sense here, it, it, in the Greek, she put in two lepta. A lepton is, it's less than a penny. So the best way to think about this is a denarius is a coin that would be a day's wages for a laborer, and it's a sustainable living wage. Okay, you get a denarius. One of these little leptons is one one hundredth of a day's wage, and she put in two. And so this is less, I mean, like a penny. You know, this, it's less than a penny. It's just not much money at all. Two very small copper coins. It is the lowest denomination that they made. 
So she put in very, very little money. Secondly, the interesting thing about this is this story that Jesus is gonna comment on is an actual historical event. This happened. Now some parables, Jesus will say, there once was a certain farmer that did such and such, and that may have actually happened, and it may have been a story to tell a purpose. It was a parable. This isn't a parable. This is just an actual event upon which he's going to comment. So the widow puts in a couple small copper coins. The rich people would have made a loud noise, by the way, when they put their coins in. Hers, not such a loud noise. And so he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He saw a widow put in two small copper coins and he says this, and this is what's interesting. His view on this is absolutely fascinating. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. That is a very strange thing to say. I mean, it wouldn't have been uh, strange to say this poor widow is being so generous because I bet she doesn't have much money. This poor widow, the fact that she's giving anything at all is kind of amazing. I'm just, I just love her faith. That would have been much more reasonable. But on the surface, it's not true. She didn't put in more money, and Jesus obviously knows that. So in what sense does he mean she put in more than everybody else? In what sense could that be true? And that's the essence of the story to live by. That's the essence of a shift in perspective. Now, I do want to point out one thing here. He doesn't disparage the rich givers in this story. I mean, Jesus has a lot of things to say about wealth, and we'll probably talk about that another series another time. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth, and probably not, not as negative as you have typically heard. But in general, uh, he's not saying the rich did something wrong by giving that money. He just says something really counterintuitive that this widow gave more. Why? How does he justify it? He says, these people gave their gifts out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Well, he's using a different scale, isn't he? He's not talking about just how much was given, He's talking about relative worth. And that's really an important idea when it comes to the idea of giving. And that's what I want to explore. So let's go to the first obvious lesson out of this. First is this. Jesus reverses the world's order of precedent. And what I mean by that is, uh, you can see from the scriptures here, and I'm just trying to connect some other places where Jesus talks about this general idea. This is an example of something Jesus has talked about. So for example, he says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, meaning people who have given up things for the sake of following Christ, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then again, a uh, chapter later, he repeats that. Many, the last will be first, and the first will be last. What's he saying? He's basically saying that the world's economy, the world's way of looking at significance, is upside down from God's. He's not saying rich people are all bad, poor people are all good. That's far, far too simplistic. 
What he's saying is, is that if you're basing your significance on the world's order of precedent, one way to think about it sociologically would be the world's system of hierarchy. All cultures have hierarchies. And so he said, if you're basing your significance on that, then the kingdom of God is gonna be a major disruption. It's going to turn this scheme upside down. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's like, wait a minute, that, that is not the world's order of blessedness or precedence or significance or relative comfort and prosperity. And so the kingdom of God, the most obvious lesson is Jesus and God look at us through a different hierarchy, through a different system of significance. Make sense? Obvious lesson out of this. Second lesson, Jesus is fundamentally changing our relationship to our possessions in general. This story has far bigger implications than she gave some pennies, they gave a bunch. She gave out of her poverty, they gave out of her abundance. It, it not, doesn't just turn significance upside down, it completely reorders the role of wealth in particular, but possessions in general. You're gonna see this all over the scriptures. It completely reorders our relationship to possessions in a very specific way. So look at this story. I know this isn't what we typically think about this story talking about, because it is talking about feeding all these people, it's got some messianic implications, but this story could have happened a lot of ways, and there's a reason it happens this way. So late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to Jesus, said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food because we're in a remote place. So they got so many people there, they're getting hungry, and he's like, you need to dismiss the crowd. You gotta stop teaching, you gotta say, we're gonna take an intermission. You guys go, you know, find a drive-through, Arby's somewhere, get you some lunch, you can come back if you want, but you gotta disperse. He replied, you go ahead and feed them. And they said, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And so there are like 5,000 men there, so you probably heard the estimates before. There were some women, there were some kids, uh, maybe 10,000 people or so. I mean, that's a big, big crowd. That's enough to get the attention of everybody in Judea. So he said, we have five loaves and two fishes. I mean, there's no way these people can eat. And so Jesus, so what are they saying? This is not enough to feed these people. Jesus doesn't argue with him, what does he do? He obviously thinks, oh, as a matter of fact, it is enough. And so he says, have them all sit down in groups of about 50. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, he broke them, then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And then, and here's, in lies the miracle. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So there's significance to that. But the point I wanna make is simply this. The disciples thought that they didn't have enough, and Jesus said, you do have enough. You have everything you need for your needs. And the interesting question here is when you look at those two people, the rich people had enough by the world's standards, the widow did not. 
So giving those two pennies, and that's apparently all that she had to live on for the rest of the week until Social Security check came. So she basically doesn't have anything left. She obviously doesn't have enough. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, boys, somebody go over there and buy her some groceries because she doesn't have enough left. That's not what he says, is it? Instead, he poses the question through that story to you and to me, how much is enough? How much is enough? This is the second layer of meaning in that story, is clearly we have a very different idea of how much is enough than Jesus does. And here's the point that I wanna make, and again, this is gonna be uncomfortable, but I don't think we realize just how radical Jesus really is. He asks us that question, how much is enough? And we typically answer in the reverse. And, and this isn't bad, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, but we typically say, well, you should tithe, you should give 10% of what you get. That, that's a good thing, I'm not here to condemn that or say anything wrong with that, but Jesus is probably asking a little different question. You're gonna see in a minute when we get down to the bare metal of this. But he's asking a little different question. He says, instead of, are you giving your tithe, he's really asking the question of, do you know how much is enough for you? Now that's a question that our culture cannot answer. And you may be sitting there thinking, gosh, Terry, I'm not sure I've ever actually thought about that and answered that question. And again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty and say, oh, you're spending way too much money. You, you know, you need to cut way back. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to let's let the scripture say what it wants to say and then let the Holy Spirit take this where he wants to take it in our lives. But the point is, it's really worth thinking about how much is enough for me because we live in a culture that says there's never enough. There's never enough. In fact, capitalism, I'm not bashing capitalism, but I'm just gonna tell you the truth, capitalism doesn't work unless people are dissatisfied and don't think they have enough. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, when our economy isn't doing well, I feel compelled to order a bunch of stuff online because it's like, I gotta do my part to get this economy going again, right? But in all seriousness, we are consumers and we have been conditioned to continue to consume and at some point you gotta say, how much more do I need? That's where Christians already are. In other words, that's what Jesus is saying. This, the question here is how much is enough? And I think that's the question. Jesus isn't saying that judgmentally. He's not wagging his finger at us. But this story puts that question to us. Not did the rich people do a good thing by giving, say they were giving 10%. Fine, Jesus isn't saying anything bad, but what he's really saying is she gave more. Why? It really comes down to the question of how much is enough. So, question. Yes, and I have a couple of questions about the temple, if you wanna do those now or later. Uh, go ahead, we might as well go back to the temple while we're here. Okay. Would you please show us where the Western or Wailing Wall is? Uh, that is a good question because this is not a very good, okay, I'll, I'm gonna back up a little bit and give you a bigger perspective. Okay, we're, in this picture, you're looking at it from the Mount of Olives and you're to the east. Western Wall is 
right down on the outside, okay, right down there, and way down there, because let me show you again. Notice how high this is? Again, we're still looking from the east. The western wall is down there at street level. It's not very wide, and it's actually part of this retaining wall on the other side. So hopefully that helps. I don't have a good picture of the western wall, but when you look at it, you're gonna see massive stones. That's because it's one of Herod's retaining walls. It's on the western side, the opposite side, and it's as close a piece of wall as you could get to where the temple was up above, okay? So that's why that area. I mean, there were houses, there were other things, they couldn't clear the whole side, but they did clear an area where you could go worship and way, 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 way up there, you, there's a mosque there now, used to be the temple. And so they got as close as they could get to the temple. Good question. So it's like this piece that you're looking at here, but it's on the other side. Yes. Yeah, that arrow is supposed to say other side of the temple. But it looks like this eastern wall, effectively. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Gentiles being in the temple. Why would they, or the temple court, why would they have wanted to be there? And how would anyone have known that they were Gentiles? Uh, Good question. So if a Gentile, okay, this gets complicated. I'm trying to think about how to make this kind of simple. So, okay, so a Gentile can be out here, but can't go in here. There were Gentiles who worshiped God. And so they were called proselytes. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. For example, remember in Acts, Ethiopian eunuch is going back to Ethiopia, but he's, he wor- he's not a Jew. And so he worships Yahweh. There were also Greeks. And in the New Testament, they have a little phrase, God-fearing Greeks. That little Greek phrase, well, that was English, but that, that little phrase is code for not Jews who worship Yahweh. So they might be there to get as close as they're allowed to the temple because they do worship God. They might not keep all the kosher requirements and they are Gentiles, so they're not allowed in, but they are God worshipers. Uh, Roman soldiers might be there. They're clearly Gentiles. So first question, why would Gentiles be there? Any number of reasons. Also, let's face it, kids, we're going to Jerusalem on vacation. We gotta go see the temple. This thing is amazing. And it was amazing. I mean, if you've seen the Dome of the Rock with the big gold dome on it. This is like one and a half times taller, again, than that. I mean, it way magnificent. So you could have tourists in there for all I know. But how would you know if somebody was a Gentile? You can tell a Gentile in those days by looking. Uh, Jews dressed, Jewish men definitely dressed distinctively. They had the little tzitzit, the little tassels on there. You'll see that with Orthodox Jews today, but in those days they had the little tassels on their garments. Um, they, I mean, there's some things they wouldn't be wearing. No skinny jeans. You know, if you had skinny jeans, you were a Gentile. You know, but bottom line, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but they would know both from your features and from your attire whether you were a Gentile. Is there something behind the amount of people mentioned, groups of 50, 5,000 men, why the fives? Does that mean something? Uh, Yes, 
I, I, there are plenty of conjectures about the significance of those numbers. I'm not gonna tell you that there's any huge significance to those numbers. Now the 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel, there's a sense of fullness fulfillment. There's a kind of a sense of foreshadowing that I came to, which I'll show you in a minute. I came to give manna for the tribes, for the children of Israel kind of a thing, but uh, I'm not convinced there's a significance, but I'm sure there are commentators that would make one, but I, I, I don't think so. Uh, okay, now to the widow. Was it obvious to people looking at her that she was a widow, or was it just because Jesus called it out and he knew? Good question. You guys are detailed people tonight. This is good, these are good questions. Yes, it's, it would have been obvious to them that she was a widow for one reason is she didn't have her husband with her. Women didn't typically go out without their husband. And if she had been married, he would have been putting the money in the treasury. Make sense? It's just, it's custom. And so did they know for some reason, oh, that's Agnes, she's a widow. No, you know, probably not, but it's kind of pretty obvious that this is a, this is a widow. Okay. So what is her motivation in giving all that she has? And this question has two potential reasons. One, that she wanted to give everything and follow Christ as the disciples did, or was she giving it as an act of faith for blessing from Jesus? Yes, uh, good question. So how does Jesus know this is all she has? He apparently knows that, but it is not obvious. Uh, and so there's nothing in the text like, oh, she gave two leptons, that means that's all you have. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that. I think Jesus knows that. I don't think anybody else knows it. She didn't say, this is all I have to live on. There it is. Anybody uh, want to invite me over for dinner? You know, she's not doing that. Jesus knows this. So that's the, there's nothing in the text that would say anything other than Jesus knows that this is the case. Now, why? That's the second part. Why is she doing this? I don't think it has anything to do with Jesus. Uh, there's no indication that she's following Jesus, or not, but there's no indication she's following Jesus. There's no indication that she expects a blessing from Jesus. Here's what I think is happening. She's a Jew, and she's putting money into the temple treasury, which was used uh, for various, various things but uh, to pay the worship leaders. I mean, that really was one of the things they used the money for. So nobody would have, would have criticized her if she hadn't put that money in there. She's not getting any kudos for it. It's not like she's gonna be, you know, uh, congregant of the year or anything. I think that she's just that devout. I think she has so much trust in God. I mean, think about this, she's a widow. And in, you know what it's like in that? She's marginalized in that culture. Unless she has family, she's got a very difficult life. There's no social security, there's no welfare. She would be begging if she didn't have family that would take care of her or friends, which is unlikely. And so this is, and this is why I think it catches Jesus' attention. This is an expression of complete reliance on God and complete trust. He said she gave more because she gave out of her poverty. I also think, this is an opinion, I also think part of what he's saying is she gave deeply out of faith. It didn't take much faith, and again, he's not, he's not criticizing the rich people, but you could see him saying it didn't take very much faith for them to give out of their abundance. It took a lot of faith to give 
what you had left. So I think that's why he remarks on it, is he's just, you know, every now and then Jesus marvels at people's faith, you know, in Christ. Which brings me to the, the uh, well, actually I want to tell you one more story about relationship with our possessions and then hold that thought about her faith and her reliance on God. Because to me, that's the real lesson here. But I want to tell you a story about John Wesley. This idea of changing uh, your relationship to your possessions and asking the question, how much is enough? And I'm not telling you this again to make you feel guilty. I just think this is one of the coolest stories. John Wesley is not the only person who's ever done something like this. But we're a Wesleyan church. Hey, I'll tell you about John Wesley, but I've always loved this story. So John Wesley, his dad was a preacher, kind of dysfunctional family, really poor. Uh, Preachers were all poor then, but his dad was really poor. John Wesley got a little bit of education, and he's going to be a preacher later, but that's not how he started out. He started out as a professor. He went to school, and he became a professor at Oxford University in the 1700s, okay? And he was elected a fellow of Lincoln College in Oxford University. So he's a professor, and he was paid 30 pounds a year. So it's England, so 30 pounds sterling per year. Put that in perspective, that is a comfortable living for a single man in those days, very comfortable. And in fact, he lived very comfortably at Oxford and taught. On 30 pounds a year, he spent money on tobacco, and this doesn't mean he's a bad person, this is just what men spent their money on when you were affluent, or you, know, you were, you were uh, comfortable. He spent his money on card games and uh, tobacco and brandy. And so he was living very comfortably. And then an incident occurred, and you know all this because John Wesley wrote more diaries. I mean, I have his diaries, and it is unbelievable how detailed this guy was, and he wrote diaries all his life. So an incident happened at Oxford. One day he had just bought some paintings to decorate his room. He didn't have a house. Think of it as an apartment, of his apartment. And so then one of the maids comes to the door to clean the house, which was part of what the service there at Oxford. And when he opened the door for her, it was a bitter, bitter cold day, he records. And he noticed that all she had was a really thin dress on. She didn't have a coat, she's freezing to death. And so she's gonna come in and clean. And he reaches in his pocket, he's a Christian, he reaches in his pocket and says, I'm gonna give her money to buy a coat he doesn't have enough money left to give her money to buy a coat. And at that moment, he said he was struck with the realization that God was not happy with the way he was spending his money. Again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I just wanna tell you this story because to me it's inspiring in a positive way. So he said to himself, and he wrote, in, this is what he wrote in his diary, he said, would my master say to me, well done, good and faithful servant? He said, those pictures on the wall come at the cost of this poor woman going out into the cold. That's how he processed this. And it struck him and it changed his life. It changed the way he viewed his possessions. So from then on, he made 30 pounds the next year and he lived on 28 pounds. So he gave away two pounds that year, decided, keeping nothing. He's a single man. 
He does not need to save for his family, so I'm not, and he's not criticizing people that save for your family or save for retirement. That's not the point of this story. The next year he makes 60 pounds. He still lives on 28 pounds. He knows how much is enough. He gave away 32 pounds. He gave away more than half his salary. The next year, I mean, you, you know all this from his diaries. He made 90 pounds. He's starting to write, by the way. He becomes very, well, he would have been affluent. He's not affluent, but he made a lot of money because he was a good writer, uh, good teacher, etc. He makes 90 pounds, still lives on 28 pounds. Didn't buy anything extra. He just lives on what he needs. He gave away everything else. Next year, 120 pounds. Still lives on 28 pounds and gives away 92 pounds gives all the rest of it away. As time went on, he got up to where he was making 1,400 pounds a year from his writings and, and, and monographs and books and all that kind of thing. And he records in his diary that he was now spending more money. It cost him 30 pounds a year to live. He gave away almost 14, that is a fortune in today's money. He gave away almost 1,400 pounds and lived on 30. My point in telling you this is pretty simple, and that is he knew what was enough. Doesn't mean that he wouldn't spend more, he just said, I'm gonna keep what's enough and I'm gonna give everything else away. And here's the interesting question, and this is the, this is the question that I ask myself, and not in a guilt-inducing way, but this story always makes me think how much is enough, but here's what it really makes me think. What if God judges our giving, not by how much we give, but by how much we kept? And it's my opinion, that's how God judges giving. Think about it. Again, Jesus isn't saying anything bad about the rich people that put in, say they put in 10%. That's a substantial sum of money, right? He's not saying, oh, you're bad people because you did that. But his evaluation of our giving and our generosity is more likely to be how much we kept rather than how much we gave. Does that make sense? That's a powerful idea. I told you it would be uncomfortable. But again, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. I just think Jesus says, I, I want you to understand just how much the kingdom of God is different than the world. So, and I want to talk about the next piece. I'm going to situate this for you, by the way. I'm going to take you back in time, 1400 BC. Israelites leave here, go to Sinai, get the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston says, okay, we've done that. Now we're going to go to the Promised Land. They spend 40 years here in the desert. Okay? Then, after 40 years, they come up and they stand across from Jericho. That's when this next passage is told. Moses stands up here and he said, you guys have spent 40 years in the desert. It's time to go into the promised land. And listen to this. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and enter and possess the land that the Lord gave to you. They're literally looking across the Jordan River at Israel. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. A big deal for them was learning what is enough. Enough to eat, enough to wear, enough security, enough to drink. It says he humbled you, causing you to be hungry and feeding you with manna so that 
you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes didn't even wear out. What Jesus is talking about with this woman is he's, he's focusing on her, not because the rich people are bad, but it's not just that he's upsetting the precedent structure of the world. He's doing that. It's not just that he's altering our look at our possessions and think, how much do I need as opposed to how much can I afford to give? He's really talking about her radical dependence on God. This is all through the Bible. This is what the Bible's actually about. And this woman is an example. And that's why I'm convinced it's in the New Testament. He probably saw a lot of people put money in. He probably saw a lot of good things like, oh, look at that old lady fell down and that kid helped her up. But it's not in your Bible. Why is it not in your Bible? I don't know. But I know why this is, because she gave out of her poverty. What is she demonstrating? A radical dependence on God. She is totally reliant on God. The Israelites in the desert, why were they in the desert for 40 years? So that they could learn to be totally reliant on God. They don't even know where tomorrow's meal is coming from unless God shows up. They're all going to die of hunger unless God takes care of them. I mean, that's an extreme example, isn't it? Maybe, I just think Jesus is that radical. I really think he's calling us to say, this story is teaching us that what God is valuing in our faith and our faithfulness is a radical dependence on God. That's why the Israelites were in the desert. They weren't lost. It didn't take 40 years to get there. Moses didn't make a wrong turn. God kept them there so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by total reliance on God. Here's another one. I'm gonna show you a bunch of passages because I really want you to see the whole Bible talks about this. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. And you know, our first reaction is, whoa, that's pretty extreme. Maybe he's teaching something metaphorical out of this. No, he's really not. Now, is he telling you that you don't need to worry about what you're going to have to eat tomorrow and that you don't need to save a little money and buy food tomorrow? That's not what he's saying. What is this all about? It says, look, anything that gets in the way of radical dependence on God, not a good thing, because then that's what you're depending on. He's saying, you need to quit worrying about these things because the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need but you seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That's what the widow was doing. She said, I love God, I'm gonna give my all to God. And as far as we know, God took care of her. In other words, this radical dependence on God. Let's keep going. When Jesus called the 12 together, so this is Jesus, takes his 12 disciples. This is really interesting. I don't know, you probably read this, but you gotta ask yourself when you read this, like why did he give them these rules? This seems totally superfluous to me. I mean, the whole point is, go out there and practice your preaching and then come back and ask me questions because you don't know it, but pretty soon you're gonna have to take this to the whole world. So he's training them, right? But he says to them, he says, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them this, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no backpack, no bread, no money, 
Don't even take an extra change of clothes. When you enter a house, stay there until they leave, and you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony and go on to the next village. And so they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. And then they come back and Jesus said, did you lack anything? And they go, no. Well, we went a few days without food here and there, but no, we gotta tell you what happened. This is unbelievable. People, you know, converted, right? In other words, they would have said, we can't do this. We can't go with no money, no backpack, no staff, no extra clothes. We can't do that. What are we gonna do? And Jesus once again says, you have enough. You just don't know that you have enough. And so they go out and they come back and they go, we had enough. It worked out great. You know, oh yeah, sure. We didn't always eat, but here we are and we're fine. And look what happened. This teaching them not just how to go preach the gospel, but teaching them how to rely on God. The only reason to have that requirement was, I want you to go out there. You're already nervous, but I don't want you to have any safety net. I want you to go out there and go, if God isn't in this, we are in deep trouble. Does that make sense? Again, this is one that's hard to understand, but I want you to understand, when you think about what Jesus is teaching this way, all these stories start to make a ton of sense. Here's one that people typically walk this back a little bit, but you don't have to walk this story back. It makes perfect sense. So there's a certain ruler said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. But you know the commandments, and he quotes a couple of them. But he said, keep the law of Moses. And he said, I've kept these since I was a boy. And Jesus, when he heard this, said to him, you just lack one thing. What does he lack? He doesn't lack obedience. What does he lack? He's rich, and Jesus senses in him that because of that, he is relying apparently on his riches. Is that true for every rich person? I'm not saying that's true for every rich person, but what is Jesus teaching him? Is he teaching him your money's bad? No. Is he saying everybody that has money needs to sell everything? No, but he is saying something. And that's where I wanna be careful. You can't just say, well, he's not telling every rich person, and you know, which by the way is you and me. Uh, to sell everything they have. No, but he is saying something. What's he saying? He's saying this, you lack a radical dependence on God. And the only way you're gonna get that is, once you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, you have tons of treasure in heaven. And then, come on, follow me. But he came very sad because he was a man of great wealth. What does that tell you? Jesus was right. He didn't have that radical dependence on God. He was hedging his bets, if you will. So again, I want you to see all these stories through the lens of what's Jesus trying to do? Is he trying to say rich people bad, poor people good? That's not what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is he's trying to say no matter what your circumstances in life, what matters to God is developing this dependence on God. Question? This goes back just a little bit, but the phrase truly I tell you when Jesus says that, can you um, translate that or tell us where that comes from? We hear it repeatedly. Yes, you do hear that a lot. The word is amen, which is translated truly. It's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word. And uh, it's, a, it's a manner of speaking that says, pay attention to this. Uh, it's not kind of like, hey, I'm telling you the truth. It's like, were you not telling me the truth before? It's not exactly like that, okay? But it, it's kind of a truly I say to you. And sometimes you'll see amen, amen. Truly, truly I say to you. And that is like, 
I'm dead serious about this. So that's basically what that means. You won't see it every time Jesus speaks, but it's a, it's a, a gesture of emphasis that I'm really serious about what I'm about to tell you. Good question. Okay, so are you advising all Christians to do what the widow and Wesley did and what the disciples did? Should we all strive to do that? How do we teach uh, things to others unless we radically do what we've seen? Yeah, good question. So first of all, I'm not gonna walk this back because Jesus is that radical. On the other hand, this isn't a prescription. Jesus didn't tell everybody, do what John Wesley did. The point of this is to understand what does this scripture want to say? It wants to say that God calls you into a radical dependence on him, that that's what faith looks like. And I may say to you, my faith is not that strong. I'm giving more and more. I'm more patient. I'm more kind. I'm more generous. We call that sanctification. I would rather think about this and say, everybody do that. If you don't, you're losers. That's not the way the gospel works. But what it does say is, this is where you're going. You're going to a radical dependence on God. For John Wesley, that was answering a simple question, I know how much is enough, and he said this. His, in his will, this is really interesting. In his will, he didn't dispose of any money because all he had were the coins in his pocket. And his, what he wrote was, he said, I can't help leaving my books behind to be dealt with, but my hands will be my own executors. Meaning, I don't intend to leave much for you to figure out what to do with. I intend to deal with it myself by giving it away. So am I saying to you that if you wanna be a good Christian, you need to be like John Wesley? No, I'm not gonna say that about anything. And the scripture doesn't say that about anything. But again, I'm not walking this back and say, oh, then it doesn't mean anything. Oh no, it means some serious stuff. And that means, what does it take for us to have a radical dependence on God? Because that's where God is taking us. For you today, it might be in a relationship and you might say, yes, that story is Jesus modeling for me how to look at life. And for me at this moment, it's, it's not about money, it's about this relationship. How do I demonstrate a radical reliance on God and trust him to work in this relationship? It might be in an illness and it might say, I'm gonna radically trust God. I don't know if I'll live or die. I don't know, you know, whatever it may be. In other words, the point of this story is this is where God wants to take you in whatever circumstance we are. Is that fair? Again, I wanna tell you this means nothing. Oh, it means some really important things, but it's not so simple as saying, just do with your money what John Wesley did. Well, now we just made a rule. For the young man, he looked at him and he said, you know what, you need to get over your reliance on money. What does he say to Terry? What does he say to you? What does he say to you? Here's the next thing I wanna work on. I want you to be closer to me because I care for you and I will take care of you. And I need you to let go of you fill in that blank. What do you need to let go of? That's what this is about. So would you say that this is a question of listening to the Holy Spirit for what God is convicting you of? Yeah, this is, the Holy Spirit is gonna take you to a total radical dependence on God. Sometimes circumstances will help you get there, right? When you realize, whoa, I'm in over my head. I got nothing but God. I guess I'll have to turn to God. But you don't have to wait for circumstances. The Holy Spirit is trying to form that in us in our everyday life. 
And so, yes, that is what the, this is where the Spirit is trying to take you. All these stories, I want you to see these stories through this lens. They're all talking about the same thing. Um, another one, here's Paul. Paul seems to have really understood this. He says, uh, I'm glad you guys sent me some money to help with the ministry, but I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. You know what that translates to? Not literally, but you know what he's saying? I have enough. I have enough. God's given me the manna. What did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer? I just want you to see how much this connects. Give us this day our daily bread. Did he say, increase my 401k with a 17% annual rate of return? That's not what he said. Now, if he wants to do that, that's great. But my point is, what did he say? Give us today our daily bread. What's Paul saying? I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Why? Because I am completely and totally reliant on God. Does that make sense? That's where we're going, and Paul really seems to get this. So here's the question to take away. Who are you in this story? And it's worth thinking about, but again, it's not thinking about like, oh no, I'm the bad guy in the story. It's like, no, that's not the point. I'll tell you who we actually are in this story. We're the rich people. And again, Jesus isn't saying they're doing something wrong by giving the money. I'm just saying that we're the rich people for this reason. Relatively speaking, we're pretty rich compared to the rest of the world. Now, I know you may say, yes, but you haven't seen my bills, Terry. Okay, fair enough. You know, I understand that. But my point is, we're pretty comfortable and affluent, by and large. I'm speaking with a broad brush here. So generally speaking, the Holy Spirit is trying to take us from the rich people who may be giving generously. Again, Jesus isn't saying anything bad. But he says, I'd like you to be as dependent on God as that widow. Does that make sense? That's where he wants to take us. Maybe that's in your money. If so, the Holy Spirit will convict you. Maybe that's in your relationship. Again, I don't know where that is next for you and me, but we're all going the same place, and that is a people who are united by their absolute total reliance on God, and he is faithful, and he will do what he says. I like this application, and, and this is gonna sound a little off the wall, but here's how you pursue that. Prayer is a demonstration of dependence on God. When I'm not depending on God, you know how many times a day I pray? Once, maybe twice if I'm being extra good. You know how many times I pray when I'm in trouble? Have you ever been in, a, in trouble? How many times do you bother God about that? It's like, oh, I'll get back to you in two or three days. No, it's like 20 times today. I'm gonna pray, God, I'm still worried about this. God, I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I need your help. Uh, you know, change my heart. Help me to accept whatever it is. Change that person's heart. Work this out. Whatever you're praying. My point is, if you're praying a lot, that is a sign that you're relying on God. I won't speak for you, but when I'm not praying very much, that means I'm not feeling like I need to rely on God. And that means I'm not where I want to be. That's, I'm not where the Spirit wants me to be. So as strange as this sounds, prayer demonstrates a dependence on God. Prayer is the, the conduit. So for example, here's Paul again in Philippians. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In other words, talk to God about your circumstances. And it doesn't always have to be, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. It can be God, here I am. Thank you so much that things are going as well as they are. That dialogue shows a dependence 
on God. It shows a connection with God. I love 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And what does that mean? It means accept your circumstances with good grace, knowing that God is in control, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety, that word also means worries or cares, on him. Why? Because he loves you. So what's the prescription for cooperating with the Holy Spirit to be as dependent on God in whatever circumstances as that widow was? And I would argue a good place to start is your prayer life, is have a constant dialogue with God throughout the day that you're not here to say, God, I'll call you when I need you. It's more of a, I'm yours, let's talk. What do you wanna be about? What do you wanna do in this situation? What do you wanna do in that situation? I don't know about you, but I pray before all my meetings. Oh, I usually pray that they be short. But, you know, bottom line, if you're meeting with somebody or you're in a situation, has it ever occurred you just pray and say, God, would you please be work in this situation? I don't know what builds up in this situation. Give me words to say. Give me understanding for this situation. Work in, in other words, bring God into everything that you're doing because that demonstrates a dependence on God, okay? I feel like we're getting preachy now, so it's time to wrap up. But I really want you to think about this story. This is one of the most profound stories in the Bible, in my opinion, because it taps into a theme that you are gonna see everywhere in the Bible. What is the Holy Spirit doing in you? The Holy Spirit is bringing you into total reliance on God, and all the fruit of the Spirit come from that. You can't be proud, you can't be self-reliant and have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where do the fruits of the Spirit come from? The more we surrender ourselves and say, like the widow did, I'm completely in your hands. My circumstances are completely in your hands. The more we surrender, the more Christ lifts us up. So this week, think about your prayer life. Think about bringing God into every circumstance in your life. Not so he can fix things or wave his magic wand, but so that you can learn to be dependent on God in every circumstance, okay? All right, we'll finish this series next week. Uh, and next week, you, you won't be uncomfortable. It's gonna be an innocuous lesson, okay? I'll see you then. <laughs>